Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today we have a podcast mashup. We're joined by the broadcaster and writer Dan Snow, who also hosts the number one history podcast, Dan Snow's History Hit. And we're going to discuss something we love talking about on Talking Politics. Can history explain the current state of politics? And if so, which history? Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, the magazine that publishes its political analysis in between essays on art and history, philosophy and technology, Princess Margaret or the Garden of Eden. Visit lrb.co.uk forward slash talking for a reading list of similarly eclectic pieces to accompany today's episode and a special subscription offer for Talking Politics listeners. Six months of the LRB for just £1 an issue. Helen Thompson is with us as well today. Helen and I talk about this quite a lot on and off this podcast. So we have, I think, views about which bit of history we should be drawing on. And we'll try and cover quite a lot of history if we can. But Dan, you so on your podcast, you have every type of historian. And most of them, I think it's fair to say, just love history. So they're not coming on to kind of explain Trump. They're coming on because they want to talk about medieval kings or whatever. But there is a strand, and it's not just on your podcast, obviously, there is a strand in contemporary history, which is the kind of warnings from history genre, particularly people who study the first half of the 20th century. And they want to say there are obvious parallels, whether it's with Trump or with European populism, maybe what's happening in Hungary or Poland. They hear these kind of dark echoes. And I guess the claim is that if we miss them, there's a risk that history at some level will repeat. Do you buy it? Yes, I'm afraid I do. I'm uh, very. You are uh, a warnings from history I'm, guy. I'm all about warnings from history. And I think it's really... I spent the 90s listening... Well, two things. One is that history had finished and there was nothing useful we could learn from it because of, the, because of computers and because of Francis Fukuyama and history had finished and that was great. Liberal democracy had won and even Russia was democracy and China was sort of joined the WTO and it was all fine. We all remember that. And then there was a second strand, though, that was usually right-wing military historians spending all their time going, I mean, the price of liberty is eternal vigilance and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, we've got to be absolutely on this. We've got to remember the Holocaust. And now that the dog is barking, and now that you've got Orban in Hungary and you've got Poland, you've got Russia, you've got Erdogan, you've got Trump... Suddenly, I don't hear those guys anymore. I, I was like, hey, what about the eternal vigilancy thing? What's going on there? And historians now seem to have broken two ways. Either people saying, yep, alarm bells ring, this is it. There's no longer a drill. I know it sounds a bit dramatic, but this is it. This is it. This is what we've all been waiting for. This is why we've been teaching kids in school almost nothing but Nazis and stuff. Which is right? true, we have. <laughs> but this is why we've done it. I thought that's the whole point, because we wanted them to know what it feels like when democracies can decay into dictatorships. And all those people in the 90s that talked about eternal vision have all gone quiet, saying, well, it's nothing, don't worry, it's not, not the same. And I, I, looking back, I suspect it's because they were right-leaning, and they assumed that the threat to liberal democracy was going to come from communism, and from this enormous existential challenge of the Soviet Union. And now that it seems to 
to be coming from right and left, but it seems to be right-wing populism, is that those guys don't seem that worried anymore. And I find that very odd. So that in my experience of the podcast and, and talking on and off it to historians, there are people who are just floating on talking about the Tudors. And there are the people who, as I say, are mobilising. And I can see Sarah Churchill's wonderful book behind you, Behold American. Yeah, and, oh, Timothy Snyder's another Tim one Snyder you had on, had on who, who was brilliant. Again, he's, you know, uh, Cass Sunstein talking about impeachment. I'm afraid I, I share their views. And I partly share their views because, as I say, when I was growing up, I was being told the whole time that, you know, it's a republic if you can keep it. You know, the Ben Franklin line. And now we need to keep it. And if we if we allow the erosion of objective fact, of of our political discourse, of the dodgy money that's flowing in our politics on both sides of the Atlantic, then we've got a really serious problem. I'm sceptical. I mean, Helen can come in in a second. We love talking about history and we love doing the historical comparisons. The thing that makes me nervous about that particular echoes of the first half of the 20th century is the crying wolf bit, that there's a danger that we're looking for it to kind of break in a way that suddenly, oh yeah, we're doing it again and it won't. And though we hear the echoes, the differences are much more profound. So I think one way to look at this is we look back to the, say, the 1930s and we think about, oh, yeah, we kind of recognise ourselves in them. But what would they think of us? You know, if you took someone from the 1930s and showed them our world, and I think they would recognise some of the politics. They would sort of hear the anti-Semitism, the racism, the conspiracy theories and all of that. And they would recognise the political institutions. Took someone from 1930s Britain and showed them our politics. They would go, yeah, it's like the same You've got the House of Lords, you, you know, the parties are the Tories, the Conservatives. You've got the same electoral system. The House of Commons looks the same. But everything else has changed. You know, these societies are just completely different. They would be blown away by how rich we are, how elderly we are, how healthy we are. You know, we're doing that kind of rhetoric to rhetoric comparison or institution to institution comparison. And we miss that these are just completely different worlds. So Though the echoes are there, I think we're waiting for it to kind of break all the way through and it won't. And there is a risk in that, which is that while we're waiting for Trump to turn into Hitler, he doesn't because he's it's Trump's world. But what's the harm in, in raising the alarm? In raising the alarm, talking about those echoes. And I mean, I think you're absolutely right. There's enormous differences. Uh, history isn't repeating itself. But I don't see the downside of saying... This is it, guys. Democracy is un- is under threat. In the US, you've got massive voter suppression. You have got othering, as, as you've mentioned. The assault on the free press is very, very important and is straight out of Mussolini. I mean, I don't want to be sort of derivative, but it is, the rise of Mussolini is so remarkable in the 20s. It's, it is just the fact that Trump is apes his body language, his mannerisms, his rhetoric is so remarkable. And, of course, the attacking the press, which, which Madison, of course, believed was almost a fourth a fourth branch of government, this idea of a free press that cannot... And if you look at the damage done to the Trump White House, it has come not from the co-equal branch of government, which is Congress, it's come from the New York Times and the Washington Post. I mean, it's completely remarkable. I think the danger, though, of making the danger, if you like, the 1930s, is is that we make democracy into a, a form of government that is usually not prone to these dangers, that somehow it needs the exceptional threat that somebody like Hitler and Mussolini posed to democracy for it to have the problems that we now see in it. And, and I just, I don't think that it does. I think that democracy is actually rather more prone to crisis or at least prone to severe corruption than we came accustomed to thinking, particularly than we came accustomed to thinking going back to your decade of the 1990s. It seems to me that the 90s is a decade of illusions where all kinds of strange ideas take hold. So we've gone back to something that's actually... It just happened to be when you were a student. <laughs> yeah, that's the problem. <laughs> Come back to something that's actually much more like normal politics if you look at it over a long historical period of time. And then the only frame that lots of people have got for explaining what's going on is, oh, it's the 1930s. Mm. 
But actually, one of the things that seems to me most strikingly different between this politics and the 1930s, including when you look at Trump, is, is the absence of private armies, of paramilitary violence. And that is, yes. that is just Vital. not... There's not there in anything that we're seeing at the moment. I'm not saying it couldn't be there, but we aren't seeing anything that, that at the moment is the equivalent of Hitler or Mussolini mobilising paramilitary men to take and, and power. To, and to use that analogy, take some from the 1930s and show us our world, and these would look like paper tigers to some sense to them, because it would be all talk. I, of course, luckily agree with you. I think the other huge thing that's different is we have one thing that Hitler did that is, is useful. Uh, is not really <laughs> if that's the word. Yeah. Is he absolutely delegitimised formal empire, formal annexation of other people's territory. And I think if you look at Mussolini and the rhetoric of him in the 20s, physical expansion of a state is something that today no one is even... I mean, that's what's so extraordinary about the takeover of, of the Crimea by Putin. And even that was... There is a sort of historical precedent. Had, had Putin marched and conquered eastern Ukraine, that would have been absolutely paradigm-shiftingly disturbing. And I think that's an important element that's missing, thank goodness, is that none of these people... like. Orban is not talking about annexations, Greater Hungary, for example. But at the same time, this is possibly a, a, a metaphor too far, but I do find that the online, the cybernats, Trump fans on Twitter and Brexit fans on Twitter, and of course they're not parametric groups beating people on the street, but I, my willingness to speak out has been curtailed by online abuse. I probably shouldn't admit this because I always pretend it doesn't, so I hope no one's listening. And for example, I, and I'm really not claiming it's very important, but I, I get asked on question time quite a lot. In the old days, you just go on and you have the lovely position of, of self-delusion and, and think you were rather brilliant and articulate and you ask your mum afterwards, she said, yeah, you were great. Now, of course, you're immediately told by 5,000 people what a complete idiot you are. And actually, I think, I think I don't need that. My mental health probably doesn't need that anymore. Now, is that a very, very small example of of suppression of opposition that people are articulating views which are in opposition to those of you know Trump or Brexit. I, mean, I would agree, and it really is a form of violence as well. We shouldn't think that yeah. there's sticks and stones violence, there's name calling violence, and they're completely different. You can coerce people in this way. Agreed. I take your point, and I think it is chilling, and, and it has a chilling effect. And yet, it's so hard to kind of believe it'll play out in the same way. So that, yes, we're in a space where things are happening that clearly parallel things that have happened in the darkest points in 20th century history, including the moment when democracy looked like it was about to collapse. But when I look forward, I don't see that history kind of gives us a sense of what's coming next. This this feels new to me. Also, I think on the, the question of like the abusive language in which politics is conducted, if you go back to like 1790s America, oh, including yes. the attacks on the press oh. and the Alien and Sedition Act, so this is completely there. This is the beginning of what we would think of as modern Republican politics, it's, and it's absolutely vicious. Yeah, the John Adams-Thomas Jefferson election yeah. is still the dirtiest election in American history, notwithstanding oh, Trump yeah. versus Clinton. Absolutely. And so we need to think, I think, OK, well, where does this come from in democratic politics? And if we get too hung up on the 1930s, we think it comes in democratic politics when whatever we want to identify the danger of the 1930s, let's call it populism, racist populism for a shorthand um, label, we say, OK, the problem arises with free speech and democratic politics when we see that. But actually, the problem of free speech arises in democratic politics an awful lot of the time. And also, look, we, you know, the Kennedy brothers and all that in the Midwest, I mean, smoke-filled rooms. As you point out, American democracy had its appalling... We, as British democracy, yeah. I use the term very yeah. reluctantly because we, as we know, live at first-past-the-post, produces the most extraordinary results. And until very recently, we had a hereditary out of laws. So, so I totally take your point. But I do think if Trump was not so hobbled by his personal indiscipline 
And if he hadn't immediately passed the one significant piece of legislation, he passed a giant tax cut for billionaires, he would be well on the way to fundamentally eroding American boxing, I think. If he was like Orban in Hungary, if he'd immediately done the infrastructure, if, if he'd gotten Medicare for all, he could have gone in and just smashed through Medicare for all. That would have been a brilliant. At the same time, starting a trade war and doing all the liberal things that he could have done. And, and actually, he's sort of holed himself below the waterline for those of us who oppose him, thank goodness. I want to offer a couple of other decades to get away from the 1930s comparison. So one more recent and one more distant. The more distant one is the 1890s, which was struck me for a while as being the closest to now because that was the populist decade and and populism is not fascism I don't think not least because of the paramilitary aspect but also because populists don't come to destroy democracy they come to rescue it to save it but the 1890s also the great age of conspiracy theories the great age of anti-expert politics it was it was the time where if you were a banker you were by definition lying for a democrat that elites had captured Washington elites had captured the you know, city of London had captured British politics, the Dreyfus affair. It's just that to me is much closer in a way to our world. And yet we don't see that connection because all of the big events of the 20th century stand yeah. between us and them. But actually, I think if we're rerunning a period of politics, it's it's the end of the 19th century. It's not the middle of the 20th. And also the big trust busting, the monopolies. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's and it was the gilded age. It was the age of inequality. It was a technological revolution. It was the electrification, transportation revolution. It was an era of peace. Mm-hmm broadly speaking. There weren't great power wars. That feels to me more like our world, but we don't, somehow it's almost too distant. We can't make the leap because you've got to get across the Second World War, the Great Depression, the to get Second World there. War is an unbridgeable ha-ha for the British British historical memory. I mean, we can't see further than Churchill. We can't get back to before 1940. It's very difficult, I think. I think as well is that the 1890s works particularly well on the case of the United States for the reasons that you said in terms of the economic crisis, the whole issue around gold, the populist reaction to that, the anti-Semitism that was part of the populist movement, the huge concentrations of monopoly power around the railroads and, and oil and Rockefeller and, and so on. So you can see any number of parallels. But I think if if we now start trying to talk about 1890s British politics or 1890s German politics... Yeah, and actually, more, I think it is French politics, which is the other difficult. point of comparison. I mean, not saying yeah, Paul Manafort is Dreyfus or whatever, but not least because he's pleaded guilty. We have that kind of... The, the but I think the thing about is... the French politics and the Dreyfus trial is, is the it seems to, from what I understand anyway, is is the the context for that turn in French politics is really the humiliation of 1870 in the Franco-Prussian War. So there's a geopolitical humiliation that is probably actually more akin, in some respect, than to Germany's after 1919. Yeah, it makes me wonder. I think it's a lot, really good. It's a really important parallel, but it also makes me wonder about people like Salisbury in 1890s Britain as a hegemonic power that to the unintelligent observer Britain looked like it was in its imperial heyday but it had actually been overtaken economically by the USA and Germany in the 90s. And, and policy makers were deeply pessimistic and nervous about Britain's ability to prolong its its remarkable period of hegemonic power and you get Salisbury in the 1890s very very pessimistic saying things like you know we absolutely messed up we should have intervened in the US civil war and and smashed American power while we still could very nervous very a sense of inevitability about Germany's domination of the European continent and so I think that kind of pessimism you see in American policymakers they're you know they've all been reading their Thucydides and they've all been uh, all misreading it and so I think the kind of hysteria around American hard power is reminiscent, I think, of the jingoism you see in, in Britain. And it's an insecurity, actually. I always think 
people are not very good at judging when you're actually at your your imperial peak in Britain actually it was decades before generations before when and yet the 1890s finally the British population had been mobilized behind this imperial project just as the imperial project was was starting to collapse I wonder if that's true of America I think the other thing about the 1890s in Britain is it's obviously is the parallel between the way in which the Irish question stops to mm. permeate absolutely everything in British yeah. domestic politics and the way in which Brexit permeates everything in British, and you might say there's an Irish dimension to uh, that. <laughs> you um, might well say that. Question too, and you might also say there's a parallel between them. At the time of that economic crisis, the extension of the franchise and the third reform, but you wouldn't have expected the Conservatives to be the dominant party in the 1890s, mm. but they were. And again, I think post-2008, lots of people wouldn't have expected the Conservatives to be the dominant party, but they just about have been. The other decade is the 1980s, because... We tend to think of that as the decade of democratic triumph, and almost you know, it's it's the decade that precedes the 1990s, which, as Helen said, is the kind of the outlier decade, but the one that frames so much of our world. But Dan, as you were talking earlier about those kind of cold warriors who were ringing the alarm bells, and they seem to have sort of gone away, but of course they're waiting for Putin to invade the Baltic states. You know, they're they're waiting for their moment of truth, for like you say, the land grab politics to come back. But you know, the, the 1980s weren't just a period of sort of democratic triumph. They're an incredibly fraught decade for Western democracies and fears about Russia haven't gone away. I mean, and, and the parallels must be there. Well, apart from anything else, they were the seedbed for the Republican news dissemination ecosystem. It was the birth of of the, the lesson from the 70s, the lesson from Watergate, the lesson from Vietnam to the American right was that we need to, they needed to launch a sustained decades-long project to, to try and seize the commanding heights of, of the US judiciary media. And I think they were practising that and building that. And, and it was a extraordinarily successful. So you've got a situation where the mismatch between American views on things like abortion and, and even healthcare, and yet the iron-like grip that people holding opposite views have on the judiciary and, and state houses and governorships across that country is completely remarkable. And that's a product of what was started in the 80s. A completely remarkable project in many ways. And it's also a time when the Soviets were... I just interviewed the excellent uh, Calder Waldron on my podcast, and he talks about this sustained attempt by the Soviets to intervene in US elections. And it is, I mean, I know we're nervous in this room about historical parallels, but let me tell you, I have never, ever come across a historical period where you just simply change, you swap out the proper nouns, <laughs> and you insert Putin, Trump, and various other things, and you have got a very similar, and, it, and, it, and actually it was the same people doing it, it was, it was KGB, SSB, whatever, so they, they have got an institutional memory of intervening in American politics, and they were doing it by attempting to muddy the waters, attempting to delegitimise facts, delegitimise politicians of all stripes, create events for you know, anti-war marches, Texas independence rallies that people would then get involved in, and they were all ultimately sponsored by the KGB, and then placing forged articles, creating conspiracy theories. And Reagan was furious about this. The CIA, there's reams of material about how they confronted this, and, and the idea was you need an educated populace who are robust, sufficiently trained in things like history to reject these, to read beyond the headline. The uh, CIA case officer in front of Congress at one stage says you need to read all of the newspapers, not just your own particular newspaper. You need to read opinion pages. If you're reading a story that seems outlandish, double-check it before sharing it with your friends. I mean, it's just unbelievable. And we have, we have seen that. And of course, the internet has just been a giant enabler for Putin and his former KGB cronies to do that on a gigantic scale. And it's one of the ways in which the 1990s becomes this kind of barrier of illusion, because 
there's continuity straight the way through from that and the 90s looked like this kind of almost deceptive moment where it seemed like that had stopped of course well, I think it the, the strange thing I think it's partly to do with the strange thing about the 80s is it really is a you know, I hate to use that cliche of a decade of two halves when it's not really, it doesn't divide in the middle either. But I And mean, also, we should say decades aren't these neat historical packages, yeah, yeah. That, but, but the they're irresistible. It, you know, the Cold War is, is, is not quite as intense, say, as it was. Uh, there was no Cuban Missile Crisis, obviously, in the, in the 90s, but it is pretty intense, and it's mm. certainly a lot more intense than it had been in the 1970s. And I just don't think we should underestimate the way that Gorbachev, when Gorbachev comes to power and then Reagan decides he can do business with Gorbachev, things change incredibly quickly. I mean, that is just a, a massive amount of geopolitical change that occurs from, let's say, from 1986-ish to 1989 with the collapse of Soviet rule. And then it does so with scarcely any violence, I mean, other than in Romania, uh, in terms of domestic terms. And that is an astonishing thing. And I think part of our problem is, is we don't quite understand how astonishing those last years of the mm. 80s are for Soviet rule to fall apart peacefully. And that was when I was a student. And way, I way in which it, you know, in you just, which it does. You live through these things and it just, I, I can't even remember thinking about it. When the wall came down, we all woke up to it. But yeah, to live through the second half of the 80s was to, I mean, be, in, it, to be in a complete daze. I mean, it is like, if you think of it, go back to the beginning of the 20th century, you know, you've got these empires in Europe, the Russian Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and the Ottoman Empire. And if you think of, in some sense, the Soviets recreating the Russian Empire is the end of that. So we enter, at least in Europe, a completely different geopolitical world, and I just don't think we understood it. And I think that's partly why the 90s turn out to be such of a, a strange decade that we, we struggle to explain even retrospectively and we've got our head full of illusions because we didn't understand the massive change that happened in Europe in the end of the 80s. And also there's a really important narrative which we probably took credit for it yeah. and I'm not sure yeah. that Reagan and Thatcher yeah. were responsible for the collapse of the Soviet Union and in yeah. fact there's wonderful quote from the CIA head of the Russia desk, the Soviet desk, the CIA goes, we played no part in the collapse of the Soviet Union. It collapsed under its own giant internal crises and the oil and things like that. So just calling it the triumph of democracy, the triumph of liberalism, it was an implication there that there was a sort of victory. And the behaviour of Yeltsin in the 90s sort of seemed to corroborate that, didn't it? He seemed to say, you won, we're going to absorb Western practices in, in terms of, you know, political, economic, financial systems. And actually that that wasn't happening as we thought it was. And it turned out that that quote-unquote victory of the West may not have existed. And, and if the Soviet Union collapsed of its own accord, then it's not surprising that what's gone on within that space has developed in a way that is particular to that space rather than the victorious liberal West. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I want to come back at the end to what Helen said about we need this very broad kind of collapse of the Russian Empire perspective on contemporary politics, which is often hard to get to. But Dan, I just want to ask you a question about something that your podcast has done a lot and we've been going through for the last four years, for better or for worse, which is commemorating the First World War. We've been through this kind of 100-year 
set of commemorations for the last four years were coming up to the climax. The launch of the war, the various major battles, the Somme and so on, commemorating in all sorts of different ways, commemorating the loss, but also trying to understand what it means uh, or what it meant. You've talked to lots of historians over this period about the First World War. You know, 100-year anniversaries are slightly arbitrary, but you know, they're important too. What What's the First World War being commemorated in this way meant to you? Right, well, yes, 100 years ago this week, the forgotten the forgotten front of the First World War, which is sort of increasingly important the more I think about it, which is the extraordinary and unexpected breakout from northern Greece of Serbian, French and, and British forces in what's called Salonika, which knocks out Bulgaria, in, in, uh, which was a, a central power within the space of weeks, and cuts the railway between Berlin and Constantinople, Istanbul, effectively knocking Turkey out of the war, precipitating this giant collapse of a centuries-old important heterodox power in the Middle East and, and we, you know, that, we know where that ended. Well, in fact, we don't know where that ended because that story is continuing, literally. They're still fighting over the patrimony today in Palestine and Syria and various other places. And so the Eastern European dimension of the First World War, which is just not remembered at all, is something that's happening as, as we speak 100 years ago. And I suppose the anniversaries, it is funny, as always with history, it divides into two groups. So there are the people, I don't know, I think it's antiquarian or right word, I don't know, that who are just fascinated by the loss and by the cemeteries and by the scale of what was going on 100 years ago. And it's a useful moment in which to pause and ponder it. And in some cases, for family members, it's very important to salute, to remember their grandparents, their great-grandparents, and that ties in with a sort of family history and a story about themselves. I'm kind of slightly less interested in that and more interested about the, the kind of geostrategic outcomes, I think it's impossible not to see the modern world still as a product of the the utter catastrophe that was 1914. And if you look, revolution in Russia, criminal regimes taking over there, which casts the longest of shadows, the collapse of Ottoman power in the Middle East and, and total failure to build something legitimate in its place, the German question of Eastern Europe, the nationalities question of Eastern Europe, as you want to say, which again arguably is, is still continues today, but certainly was a hugely important factor in the outbreak of the Second World War, an even more giant catastrophe, the collapse of British imperial, financial imperial power, the delegitimization of European rule over the rest of the world. So I I think those things are important to talk about and think about on this centenary but I also agree with you I'll still be thinking about them next year <laughs> so that in a way because I would maybe this is overstating it but I've always thought that the pivotal year of the 20th century the year that made our world was not 1914 or 1917 or 1918 it was 1919 mm-hmm. that actually you know the war changed everything but it didn't settle anything well, well. what mattered was what happened afterwards the politics the non-war politics the Weimar Constitution, the Versailles Peace Treaty. These are the things that in the end shaped the legacy of the war. Americans saying, we don't want to do that again. Confronting the Bolshevik regime for the first time in a non-war setting where you can actually think about and not knowing what to do about it. I don't know how we're going to commemorate 1919. It's, it's, it's a different thing. But in, in some ways, that's the year that matters. I partly agree, but I think there's a counterfactual there that's really hard to... Well, I don't know what the answer is. To Do we get to, you know, like the Bolshevik Revolution without the First World War? No, we don't. And so, <laughs> I mean, it could be that you just push it further back into the future, but as I, I wouldn't pretend to know enough about it to make a judgment. I'm also saying that the events that shaped the world we now live in happened between 14 and 18... But the beginning of the shaping of their significance only really can happen when the fighting is Well, stopped. then the question is, is like, what do you do about remembering the Versailles Peace Treaty? Because then that becomes the, the crucial it is, yeah. question. Yeah. And, yeah. and is, is, do you see it as something that was just an absolute failure because of 
that it's a straight path that gets you from 1919. I mean, to this is almost a family question for you yeah. because you're uh, Margaret Macmillan. It's my yeah. aunt who, and she, yeah, her book was really important actually in getting people to rethink that. 1919 is going to be an well, important anniversary for her. It's a big one for her. It's a big one in the family. Uh, I think uh, what I would ask you guys is, I mean, this is a question about agency. We, we want someone to be in charge. And I think even on the left, the myth of Rupert Murdoch's a powerful one because it's sort of comforting to know that someone's in charge, right? Someone's got this mad, anarchic, chaotic system. If Rupert Murdoch wants something to happen, maybe it'll happen. And even if we don't like the outcome, it just at least someone's got a lever they can pull. And actually, what if the truth is that we don't? Humans are powerless. And I think what comes powerfully out of Margaret's book, Margaret Millen, about Versailles, is these people are gathered Lloyd George has got Spanish influenza. Uh, Clemenceau is shot, <laughs> recovering from a bullet wound. Um, Wilson is sick. Wilson yeah. is sick, really and, and they're trying. To, and, and the British and French armies are are almost at the point of disintegration. They're being demobilised. The Soviets are about to launch this thrust into Poland, and, and I'm not sure whether I'd be very interested to hear what you. Got. I mean, do you, do you see Versailles? Do you see Yalta? Do you see any of these great conferences of the, of the 20th century as actually? the individuals being able to reshape the world successfully, or are they actually just kind of responding to these just catastrophic events? I think it's really hard, and I think the Versailles one's actually particularly difficult to think about here, because you think you could make an argument, say the crucial year actually then is 1917, not because of the Bolshevik Revolution, because of the US entry into the World War, so that then the world is changed by the US becoming a power that's acting in, in Europe. This is the moment when the rise to the United States as the dominant military, political, economic power in the world becomes clear. So then what do you do about interpreting, you know, like Versailles, is it that Wilson has just got a way too ambitious idea about what he wants to do, he makes tactical mistakes because he doesn't ensure any domestic support in the Senate in particular, for, he doesn't bring any Republicans with him to Versailles, or is it actually that America is not in a position having just come into this war a year before it's ended to impose any kind of systematic peace on Europe that it has then got the capacity, including the domestic capacity, to uphold. And then it becomes less about Wilson and more about this strange arrival of America and Europe. And I don't know what the answer to that is, but I think that understanding what the answer to that is is probably part of the answer to your question. I'm going to give a slightly evasive answer, which is, in my world, the history of political thought, a really important anniversary of 1919 is a lecture that Max Weber gave in January 1919 called Politics as a Vocation, which I think has some claims to be the really most important piece of political writing that comes out of that period. And it's about dealing with the unintended consequences of your actions. And that is what political responsibility is for Weber. And to sort of frame it, Weber would say it's a false choice, like either you create the world that you intend or the world gets away from you. It's like what you do in the world that gets away from you. And that's what 1919 is about. You know, what happens in American politics? What happens in European politics? as they lose control of this event that they were part of but you know, got way bigger than any of the politicians. And you know, that becomes the 20th century story. So apart from anything else, I hope we'll do a podcast about the Weber text. Yeah, because <laughs> uh, it's In a way, it is important. and it's, The ideas matter as well. I think there's also a really important point about making peace in democracies. And if you look at the 18th century, which is my, my wheelhouse, the peace treaties following the War of Austria's Succession, Seven Years' War, and the American Revolution, they are incredible. I mean, these oligarchs meet around a table and are able to swap, famously kind of swap colonies all around the world and sort of divide up the world. On several occasions, the Brits give away vast amounts of their wartime gains in order to achieve a what they hope will be a, a lasting peace. 
and they understand that to do that you have to leave as Julius Caesar says you have to leave, give the enemy a golden bridge you can't make Louis XV agree to a kind of Carthaginian peace because he'll fight on and you're all bankrupt and it's a nightmare and I think what's interesting about Versailles is actually we all, we all now go oh my god the Habsburg Empire was a very civilised entity right a kind of multi-confessional multilinguistic, multi-ethnic kind of blob that sat there in, in a sort of quite a harmless way, almost harmless way, because they were sort of incompetent, and just dealt with an area of the world which is geographically and demographically has proved to be quite difficult. And of course, exactly the same is true of the Ottoman Empire. But you've just convinced, you know, millions of mothers in, in the UK and wives have seen their, their menfolk go off to war, they've worked in factories. You can't then say, we've won, and actually the answer here, the statesman-like answer is to just is actually to bolster our defeated enemy, which is kind of what well, I would not pit the elder actually, but kind of what those negotiators were doing in the 18th century to France. They go, look, actually, we, we need to take our foot off the trachea of the French monarchy here. We've, we've been too successful. And I think there's a really interesting point. I, I think that's really interesting, but I think there's another parallel, and it's, it's not quite about democratic politics because you could say, if you go back to the Congress of Vienna, that the equivalent of dismantling the Austro Hungarian Empire is dismantling the Holy Roman Empire mm-hmm. and then allowing what's going to become the confederation of Germany that Prussia is going to dominate and is going to lead to an 1870 and a unified German state. And then we're into the politics that we're now talking about at the end of the 19th century, first half of the 20th century. So you could argue that they make something like the same mistake in geopolitical terms, but there's no democratic politics because, as you say, it's not a Carthaginian piece well, in, in 1815, whereas it is in 1919. But when the Germans get to make the peace in 1870 with the French than it is right exactly and that's the point everyone says Versailles was really tough and it's like well the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk I mean come on that was brutal I mean you just it was the most punitive imposition of of peace I mean it was insane and so obviously Venice is an interesting one right when Napoleon comes back it has to get slightly more punitive but the extraordinary thing about Vienna was that partly because of Talleyrand's brilliance but France was re-accepted into this community of nations as a great power and in fact at Bourbon France Wellesley and Wellington and various other policymakers met and realised you needed to strengthen Bourbon France. And actually with Versailles, social democratic Germany, which was by that stage the counterparty, with the era of, of Vienna statesmen, have said, right, we need to do what we can to legitimise this new, this new entity, which is no longer the kind of Juncker, Prussian, Williamite Germany. But of course, the, the population are like, I thought the whole point is we're going to crush German industry and, and deal with these people. Yeah, and we are coming up to the 100th anniversary, which I'm sure won't be celebrated much of the election that came after the war, the general election, the coupon election, where people had flu, everyone was suffering post-traumatic stress disorder, the politicians and the voters. It was the worst time ever to hold an election. A no, election. Yeah, and no one knew what to stand on, so it turned out from nowhere they stumbled across a slogan which was Make Germany Pay. That's democratic politics. I want to ask a last question. Two ways of doing it, take it either way you want. And we sort of drifted this way, so from the 20th century, opening up history does that, and it's great. Like, we're back in the 18th century and then going back possibly to the Ottoman Empire and so on. So there is also a sense about contemporary democratic politics. If you look at the Bob Woodward book about Trump, uh, we talked about this a bit last week. It's a bit more like a monarchical court in some ways than it is a conventional democratic, small d democratic administration. Steve Bannon likes to do this. He likes to make these big historical comparisons before Trump fired him. He said, I'm Cromwell and Trump's Henry VIII. Or he says, Trump is Tiberius Gracchus, the the great populist of the Roman Republic. 
there is a sense that we're living through a point in politics where maybe the conventional democratic or modern points of comparison don't quite capture it. The other side of this is we've got politicians, whether it's Chinese politicians or Hungarian politicians, who basically say to Western Europe, your view of the world is too narrow because you're kind of post, well, it could be post the French Revolution or it could be post the Industrial Revolution, but you're kind of just that second half of that millennium. We're millennial. Now, we see the big sweep. Orban says it. Xi says it. I'm going to ask you another do you buy it question. Do you buy it that, that actually that kind of really big sweep is something we should in Western Europe spend more time thinking about? Yeah, I mean, of course we should. I just don't believe Orban and Xi. I mean, I think Orban and Xi are worrying about the next six months. I mean, I, there's a great, you know, theory that the Chinese Communist Party, are these, I mean, they're building giant ring roads around Beijing, not for this generation of commuters, but for the next gen. And I think what they're doing is just trying to pour money into into the economy. Get the traffic moving. Get, get traffic moving and, like, firing dollars into their economy, right? So, you know, they're just building enormous white elephants and, and saying it's because of grand strategy. And I, Orban the same. I mean, I just don't buy that, but... But at the same time, it is really important to remember that there are certain geographical... Um, your Jared Diamond thesis about, for example, the size of the, the importance of China within the global economy over thousands of years rather than just their disastrous last few hundred years. So in the early 15th century, as we all know now, China dominated the Indian Ocean in, in a maritime sense. It was the biggest economy in the world. And in the same way, we, we should remember that Britain's relationship with Europe is, is more than either splendid isolation in the late 19th century, so-called, or our decade of shame in the 1970s, which seems to be the lens through which most people kind of choose which side to be on. And in fact, our relationship with Europe goes right back, you know, the Celtic tribe's decision about what to do about Julius Caesar's presence in Gaul. So, of course, we need to remember the big sweep. But I also don't... When nationalists start telling you that they've unlocked this sort of magical, whether it's Bannon or Orban, that they've identified the sort of glorious role that the Hungarian Magyars played in protecting Europe from either the Mongols or the Islam. I mean, it's just absolute nonsense. And there is one other thing I'd like to raise you guys, which is I was watching the other day the robot on Mars, you know, and I thought, we've managed to put a bloody robot on Mars and we're giving it instructions. This is completely remarkable. In every single area of our lives, we have, have, I've met a young woman whose heart had been taken out and she wore a backpack and she had an artificial heart in her backpack. Yet in political terms, when you read Woodward's book and you listen to what Bannon has said on and off the record, we might as well be living with a sort of insane hereditary monarch. And a question for you guys is how, how, when we've advanced in all these other fields, is our politics, to a large extent, still mired in the language, in the corruption in the, in, of the Athenian Pinnix? What is the next stage of politics? That's a big question to end yeah, on. Sorry, sorry. I, well, yeah. I don't think it's because you can get past the problem of corruption in politics. I would say that is the answer, is, is that it's not possible to progress in politics in, in the same way because corruption, and I'm using that in the very general mm. sense, not just material corruption, but that political arrangements decay through time and in part that they decay through time through material corruption and in part because of concentrations of power so we're never going to get to in some sense a a better politics we can always have a better politics than where we are at any particular moment but the idea we're going to make the kind of advances that we've made with you know like medical technology i just i just can't that's uh, very depressing i just but it well maybe it is maybe it isn't i would say that what you can see is not repetitions it's the wrong word sort of parallels in political dynamics and if you can't actually make a great deal of political progress you can kind of see some of the same dynamics playing themselves out at different times and and I've just been quite struck really since we've been doing this podcast and thinking about you know historical questions and how to understand politics and the events of the last two or three years that I've spent more time thinking or reading about the 16th century and medieval European history 
And I have to say, I find it quite illuminating for understanding contemporary politics. It doesn't mean that we're back in the 16th century or that the things that Orban says about, you know, like the Battle of Mohash for Hungary, are, the way of thinking about are true in some sense. But I, I still think that there are things that are unfolding sort of contingencies that are now in our politics that are recognisable if you started from before the modern period. And in one way, I'd say that our political understanding is impoverished if we only use modern history. And I mean by that history kind of like from the French Revolution onwards. And I, and I do think we've got a tendency to that as well as a tendency to let's make it all about the 20th century. I'm going to give a slightly different kind of answer. It's a really difficult question to go back to what I said earlier. You take someone from the past and show them our world and they would say you've you got people, well, you've got machines on Mars, you put people on the moon, someone's walking around with a heart strapped to her back and you have the House of Lords your parties haven't changed your politicians look the same they sound the same you've got the electoral college in in the united states you know it's just sort of when's it going to catch up i think it will change talk about something that we on our separate podcast talked about recently with adam too the sort of 10 year cycle since the crash a lot has changed in those 10 years and 10 years ahead i think we could be in for some dramatic changes. I also think we're at the beginning of the technological revolution in politics. We're by no means at the end of it. But I think there is also a risk for the reasons Helen says, because politics doesn't change that fast, and because some things do seem to be relatively baked into how it works, there is also a risk that we're in a world that politics is going to be left behind because people will find other ways of changing how they live, whether it's through technology, whether it's through new kinds of communication or whatever. We might be on the cusp of a point where our politics actually gets frozen in place. We carry on with elections. We elect stranger and stranger people. They get angrier and angrier. We get angrier and angrier with them. And while we're doing that, China or Google or who knows shapes our world. That's the thing that worries me. feels like that's already happening. But I've got my little pet idea is that Trump and as well as these other ridiculous strongmen elsewhere. But Trump is a, is a clear warning to me that we need to jettison the idea of leadership. And it's that wonderful quote from the civil rights movement, in the US, which is, a strong people don't need a strong leader. And I think we've still, in, in, in our corporate world and elsewhere, we've got an attachment to the often male sort of messianic leader. And Trump is a wake-up call, and we need to get rid of this idea. And I don't know what replaced it, and everyone can laugh at me, but we are too sophisticated a society to sort of elect these monarchical figures, these kind of Renaissance princes who have all the failings of all of our humans. I mean, I would be a shockingly bad leader. And I think we are reaching a point of complexity where maybe we just don't need that person. Later on this autumn, we're going to be talking to the historian Tom Holland about ancient Rome and whether thinking about Julius Caesar can help us understand politics today. We will tweet a link to the episode we did a while back with Jill Lepore. That was about Trump and American history, and her new book about American history is just about to come out. If you want to hear a bit more of Helen and me talking to Dan Snow, we did a separate conversation for History Hit, which is about technology and history. Next week, we're going to be talking about dark money, corruption, and really, really rich people. Do join us for that. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. For those of you politics fans who want a little bit of historical context, please uh, head over to Dan Snow's History Hit, which is my history podcast where we do everything from the Stone Age to, of course, Donald Trump.
Great. Special yeah. voice for that. Oh, yes, a special voice. Special Chino's voice. Chino's voice. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.